Sometimes words have two different meanings. Let's say, for example, that you go into the doctor and he says, oh, I'm sorry, you have varicose veins. Well, you, you, you know by that statement, uh, you know what varicose means. It means swollen, enlarged. Well, it can have two meanings. It can also mean nearby, varicose. Or you might go into the doctor and he might uh, say, well, that tumor is not malignant, it's benign. Well, you know what benign means, not malignant. But it also can mean what you are after you be eight. You're not encouraging me here very much this morning. <laughs> These are supposed to engage the audience. All right, consider this. Sometimes phrases can have two meanings. I wondered why the baseball was getting bigger. Then it hit me. Or how about this one? The dead batteries were given out free of charge. Well, you guys really need some help this morning. <clears throat> well, okay, let's, uh, let's shift to something maybe a little more serious. Words can have a couple of meanings. Phrases can have a couple of meanings. Events can have a couple of meanings. By the providence of God, we find ourselves, as we are preaching and teaching through John's Gospel, verse by verse, we find ourselves, again, in John chapter 19, which is that glorious chapter that describes um, the events surrounding the death of Jesus. In anticipation of chapter 20, when we will be talking about the resurrection of Jesus. This morning we are looking at John chapter 19, verses 25 through 27, but that's only a, a, a third of what we'll actually be looking at this morning from the pages of Scripture. What we find in our text this morning is a very simple uh, statement by our Lord, actually two statements that are glued together, uh, a, a statement that in, in, in its simplicity he is, he is giving us insight into uh, some family dynamics. Now this is the third statement that Jesus makes from the cross. And as we compare uh, Matthew's Gospel with, um, and Mark's Gospel, John, Luke's Gospel, with John's Gospel, we, we find that there are seven statements by Jesus from the cross. Three that happen early in that six-hour period where Jesus is, is on the cross, and then the last four come really in quick succession at the end of that six-hour period, right at the very end of his death. Let me read our text, and then I will go back and we'll harmonize all of the gospel records and we'll look at each of the statements in order. Here's our text from John chapter 19. Verse 25, 
But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that is, very close, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. We go back into Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel in particular. We find that this this is the order that these seven statements come in while Jesus is on the cross. First, he prays, Father, Forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. That's from Luke chapter 23. Also from that same chapter, the second statement that Jesus utters is to the penitent thief crucified next to him. Jesus says, truly, I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Third, he speaks to his mother and his cousin John. Woman, behold your son, behold your mother. Then at the very end of his time on the cross, the fourth, fifth, sixth, and seventh statement in this order follow very quickly one right after the other. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am thirsty. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now, this morning, we're going to look at the first three of these seven statements. Next week, Lord willing, we will look at the remaining four. I could have put in your outline the statement itself so that you will know exactly where we are uh, at. But rather, I, I, uh, I, I, I typed in a major lesson that those words teach us. You will notice immediately beneath each of the three points in your outline a particular passage of Scripture. The first one from Luke chapter 23, the verses 33 and 34. That's where we find that statement. So on the other two points, you'll find passages of Scripture immediately below that, and that's where we will focus our attention. So I'd like you to turn with me. We'll come back to John 19. But I'd like you to turn with me first to Luke chapter 23. Luke 23, find verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, Luke writes, there they crucified him, and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now to understand what Jesus is saying here, we have to ask two questions. The first question is, who said this? And secondly, to whom did he say it? Or of, about whom 
is he speaking? Now to the first uh, question, who is, who is praying? Who is saying these words? We might answer with a big, duh, because it's patently obvious. In my copy of the scriptures, it's in red, meaning Jesus said it, right? Well, sometimes editors do make a mistake, but not here. Yes, Jesus did say these words. He prayed to the Father, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Now, before we press on, let me linger here for just a minute. Jesus spoke this. Jesus is the second person of the Holy Trinity. Jesus is God in a human body. There is one God. And this one God has one will. So for Jesus to pray to the Father, it is as though they are having a conversation over something they've already agreed on. And Jesus specifically prays, Father, forgive them. So if Jesus, who is the incarnation of God, prays, whatever he might pray, knowing that he is praying um, and in, in agreement with the Father and the Son, we know that his prayer is effectual. That is, it's going to accomplish what he purposes for it to accomplish. He doesn't waste his breath. To speak in anthropomorphic language, we might say that the Father never says no to his Son. So if Jesus prays for forgiveness, we know that forgiveness is going to be granted. Jesus is the one who actively and actually forgives. You remember when there was a woman caught in the act of adultery that was drug before Jesus, John chapter 8. I'm positive that that was a plant because it takes two to tango. And where's the guy? The guy is nowhere to be found. But this woman is drugged before Jesus. Teacher, what are you going to do about this? She deserves to be stoned as per Mosaic law. And they're right. And what does Jesus say to that woman? He does not condemn her. Rather, he says, Go, from now on, sin no more. Jesus extends forgiveness to this woman. He's the one who actively, actually forgives. Do you remember that, that, that incident recorded in Luke chapter 5 where there was a man paralyzed for a very long time, bedridden man, whose 
friends had it in their mind, we're going to take him to Jesus. Jesus heals people. He's going to be the best thing that's ever happened to this man. They went to the place where Jesus was speaking. The place was packed. There was no way for them to get in. So they said, okay, we've got our recip saws with us. Let's climb up onto the roof, cut a hole in the roof, and lower him down. That is creative, my friends. And when that happened, this is what we read. Luke chapter 5, verse 20. Jesus said to them, Friend, your sins are forgiven you. Just like that. The religious leaders were apoplectic to hear such words. The text continues, verse 21, the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins he said to the paralytic i say to you get up and pick up your stretcher and go home immediately he got up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying god And all were struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. (laughs) Understatement of the year. Yeah, we've seen something kind of interesting. Yeah. So when Jesus prays, or when he pronounces forgiveness, forgiveness happens. Okay, if we've established that fact, now we're ready for question number two. For whom is Jesus praying? We're still in Luke chapter 23. Jesus is on the cross, hung between two criminals, and he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Who's the they? Who's the them? Who are these people that Jesus has in mind when he's talking about forgiveness? Well, we got three options. Gentiles, Jews, or a combination thereof. Is there anything else on the planet? Well, we could be a little bit more specific. Option number one. He's talking about the Romans, the Roman soldiers that have just nailed him to a torture stake. Jesus says, forgive them, they do not know what they're doing. Well, these Roman soldiers, they probably had no idea who this Jesus was. They were just doing what they were told to do. They certainly were acting out of ignorance. They had no idea what they were doing. So was Jesus focusing on them? Father, forgive them. 
because in this act of nailing me to this tree, they don't have any clue of what's going on. In the book of 1 Timothy, chapter 1, Paul confesses to his younger protege, Timothy, I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. So we know from Paul's own testimony that God shows mercy to the ignorant. Well, these Roman soldiers certainly fit in that category, as do we. We do things that are not right, sometimes ignorantly. We don't even realize that we have broken the law, for example. Not too long ago, the normal route that I take here to the church building had a change in the speed limit sign. They lowered it by 10 miles an hour. I hadn't even noticed it. And one of our boys was in the seat next to me, and he said, Dad, when did they change the uh, speed limit sign? I hadn't even noticed that they had. Well, I paid closer attention the next time. I sinned out of ignorance. Now here's another question. What happens if I sin willfully, defiantly? What if I sin with knowledge? That is, I know it's wrong, and I'm going to do it anyway. Does God forgive that kind? Does he extend his mercy to those kinds of sinners? You better hope that he does because you and I are both guilty of sins of, of, of uh, ignorance and sins of knowledge. So what God does to that sinner who sins ignorantly is he gives knowledge. And that person who repents of their sin is forgiven. That person who sins with the high hand. That person who sins with defiance. That person who sins with knowledge is convicted of the knowledge they already have. And that person who repents of sin is forgiven. In Matthew chapter 27, we find this statement by the former tax collector Matthew. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening became very frightened and said, truly, this was the Son of God. Was that a statement of conversion? Was that a statement of repentance on his part? Did he recognize that out of ignorance did he offend the Son of God? 
If so, this may be a, 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 a positive example of Jesus' prayer being answered. Option number one, Jesus is praying for these Roman soldiers. And here's an example of one of them, a centurion, who says, truly, this was the Son of God. Option number two is that Jesus was praying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. He was praying for the religious leaders. He was praying for the Jews. You remember when uh, one of the first deacons, Stephen, was uh, um, arrested and, um, and uh, eventually martyred, he, he, he said this just before he was stoned. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Now, this is very much in keeping with what Jesus said on the cross before he died. Of course, Stephen is, is, is just a man. He's, he's not God. He, he doesn't have the power, doesn't have the authority of the Lord Jesus. Uh, but their prayers are similar. And we do read this in the previous chapter in the book of Acts. Chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God kept on spreading and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. Now, a word of clarification. Obedience does not make us saved people. I am not redeemed I am not justified, I am not made right with God by my obedience to God's commandments. No, obedience, as it is here in this scripture, follows faith. I believe, I am born again, I am adopted into God's family, and then I obey. So these priests, these Jews, many of whom may have been in Jerusalem when Jesus was executed, many of them came to faith, and subsequently they walked in obedience with the Lord. So, so is this an example of, of Jesus' prayer being positively answered? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. These Jews didn't know what they were doing. Is this, is this verse in, in Acts chapter 6 uh, an example of some of these Jews coming to faith, coming to receive forgiveness? Option number three, I think the best option, is that um, Jesus is praying for the, the them, the 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 third person plural, uh, throughout the ages. Uh, and we might label them uh, the elect, uh, the chosen, um, those who have been, been uh, tapped out, if you will, from before the foundation of the earth, uh, those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life from eternity past, You look with me at Acts. No, 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 that's where I am right now. Um, book of Ephesians, chapter 1. 
The Apostle Paul writes, He chose us, speaking of the Father, He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Verse 5, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This choosing, this adoption, this, this uh, identify, identification of, of specific individuals appears to be the best way to understand Jesus' prayer, Father, forgive them. All these people through the ages who were among his chosen ones. From a human point of view, not being able to read the Lamb's Book of Life, not being able to, to know and discern exactly who it is that the Lord has, has called and uh, in, internally called, chosen for himself, we would read uh, from Romans chapter 10. If you confess your mouth with your mouth, Jesus as Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. You don't need to spend one ounce of time wondering, worrying. If, if, if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you don't have to spend one ounce of time. All you need to do is focus on, do I repent of my sin? And do I trust the Savior? So when Jesus prayed, finishing up here in Luke chapter 23, when Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. He may have been praying for specific um, Roman soldiers. He may have been praying for specific religious leaders in his day who had been hovering over him uh, all day. He may have, and I think this is the best way to understand it, he may have been praying for all of his people throughout all of the ages. Father, forgive them. Because Jesus is the one who prays this, and he doesn't waste words. When he prays for forgiveness, forgiveness follows. Second page of your notes. Let's go a bit deeper. We need to stay on this topic of forgiveness for just a moment, and I need to open up um, a, a, a bit of understanding regarding the, uh, the, the doctrine of imputation. Now, you may not know that word. Um, that is an important theological word to wrap your mind around because that is the heart of the gospel message. The word imputation comes from the world of finance. It means to credit to someone else's account. Now, more generically, outside of that particular uh, discipline, we use the word imputation to mean to regard, to consider, to ascribe, to reckon. 
Let me give you a biblical example. Genesis chapter 31. Here we find um, the uh, patriarch Jacob having worked for many years for his uncle Laban is now secretively making plans to leave his uncle's house and to set out for the land of Canaan where he was born. Now, Jacob's two wives, you remember, Leah and Rachel, were Laban's daughters. And in the midst of understanding Jacob's secret plan, they justified his choice with regard to their father by saying these words. Genesis 31, verse 14. Rachel and Leah said to him, um, do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned, there's that idea of imputation, are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. The two ladies, Jacob's wives, Laban's daughters, agree together, our dad has treated us as foreigners, strangers. He has imputed to us that status. We're not his daughters anymore. He's just treating us like strangers. That's the idea of imputation. They are reckoned by Laban as foreigners, considered to be foreigners. They ascribe, uh, Laban ascribed uh, foreigner status to these women. Okay, back in the New Testament, we have three important places where imputation shows up. In Adam and in Christ. One in Adam, two in Christ. Our imputation in Adam, Romans chapter 5, is that his sin, Adam's sin, has been imputed, credited, charged to, reckoned to the account of all who are his progeny. That is, every person who is ever conceived is regarded in Adam as a sinner. So that God is just to punish all sinners, even those who are born prior to birth, because they are found in Adam. They haven't done anything sinful, and yet God has imputed this sin of Adam to all. So that precious little one that comes out of the womb is a wretched sinner in need of forgiveness. Now, uh, that's beyond the scope of our, uh, our, our attention today. That's for another time. We're not going to talk about the imputation of sin to, uh, to, to mankind through Adam. That, that is the, at the root of the doctrine of total depravity, by the way. 
No, we're going to talk about the imputation with regard to Christ. And it is a double imputation. It works like this. My sin is imputed to Christ. And at the same time, Christ's righteousness is imputed to me. I am credited with Christ's righteousness while he is credited with my sin. Let me take you to a few um, verses to help you wrap your mind around this. We read this in Acts, I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 53. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. The Father has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him, the suffering servant, the servant of Yahweh, the second person of the Trinity. So the Father has imputed to the Son the sin of us all. Who's the us all? Isaiah helps us in just a few uh, verses. Chapter 53, verse 12. He himself bore the sin of many. Okay, so we, we do not believe, Christians do not believe, that all people are going to be saved. That universalism um, doctrine is, is, is not something that is uh, biblical. No, he has, he has bore the sin of many. The author of Hebrews uh, confirms the same. He said, Christ offered, this is chapter 9, verse 28, Christ offered once to bear the sins of many. So not everyone, but there is a group of people, the many, for whom Christ died. He bore their sin. 1 Peter chapter 2, the uh, big fisherman says this, he himself, speaking of Christ, bore our sins in his body on the cross. He's writing to believers. He bore our sins. Turn with me to first, no, no, second Thessalonians. No. I, I, keep, I keep just passing by past verse, uh, books of the Bible and I, I just read them rather than think about where, I'm, where am I really going. Second Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. He made him, the Father made the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. If you let your eyes go up a couple of verses to verse 19, he uh, offers some clarification here. He says, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself the world here does not mean every person without exception in the world. It means every person without distinction in the world. He's reconciling all peoples of all kinds to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. How does he do that? Verse 21, he made him who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Our sin 
was imputed to Christ. He was not a sinner, but God treated him as a sinner because his, because your sin, my sin, was imputed to Christ, reckoned to Christ. He was the one who was considered the sinner. Second part of this imputation, end of verse 21, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ's righteousness is is draped over our shoulders as if it were a cloak. It's not ours. It belongs to Christ. But when the Father looks at us, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Because his righteousness, his perfections, whereby I am able to get into heaven, is given to me. Not because I earn it, not because I deserve it, but because God in his mercy chose to give me that gift. It's purely, wholly his to give. Not mine to earn, not mine to deserve. Listen to what John MacArthur wrote to sum up this idea of imputation. I find this very helpful. On the cross, Jesus wasn't a sinner, but the Father treated him as if he was. You're not righteous, but because of Christ, the Father treats you as if you are. On the cross, the Father treated Jesus as if he lived your life so that he could treat you as if you had lived his. Point number one. Jesus died to secure forgiveness for repentant sinners. Point number two. Jesus died to secure life for repentant sinners. In John chapter 19, verse 18, Jesus very, I'm I'm sorry, the Apostle John uh, very succinctly, almost tersely uh, recorded this. There they crucified him. And with him, two other men, one on either side, Jesus in between. Now from here, uh, the Apostle John goes on to talk about the sign that Pilate made that said, Jesus, the King of the Jews, translated it and had that, that, that placard hung on the, on the cross. Uh, there was a conversation that was taking place that John does not record between this trio of crucified men. Now you find in your notes that you find this also in Luke 23, and I invite you to turn back there with me. Luke 23, verse 39. One of the criminals who were hanging there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us! But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? 
since you are under the same sentence of condemnation. And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. We call these last words the words of the penitent thief. Now I want you to make a few notations with me as you look over his, his words again. First, he was honest with himself and he was honest with God. He was a sinner, he had done wrong, he deserved to be exactly where he was. He was honest with himself. Secondly, he knew that Jesus was different. He knew that Jesus was innocent. He didn't deserve to be there. That is Jesus. The thief knew he deserved to be there, but not just Jesus. Secondly, I note that he calls Jesus by name. Now, the religious leaders didn't talk about Jesus. They didn't use his name. They typically called him him, or uh, that man, or this man. Jesus' name comes from the Hebrew word Yeshua. And if we translate that Hebrew word, we get the word Joshua. If we take that Hebrew word through the Greek language and then into the English language, we get the word Jesus. It means Yahweh saves. I wonder if the religious leaders chose not to use that name, chose not to call Jesus by his given name, because it was this reminder to them that Yahweh is the one who saves. And I wonder if this penitent thief intentionally used Jesus' name because he recognized there was power and authority in that name. Which leads me to another notation. This penitent thief submitted himself to Jesus as the higher authority, higher than even the Romans that were in charge of Judea at the time. And, and fifth, I, I, I note that this penitent thief wants what Jesus provides. He probably had no idea of the fullness of what it meant for Jesus to be Messiah. But whatever that might have meant, he wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted what Jesus had. Now, he was probably a Jew. And as such, he would have gone to synagogue and he would have at least a modicum of understanding of Old Testament theology. And when Jesus prayed or, or, or made the statement to this penitent thief, today you shall be with me in paradise, that brought some, uh, that, that, that brought some bells and some expectant hope into this man's soul, even while he was hanging on the cross. In Old Testament categories, the Old Testament saints understood that when a person died, they went to Sheol. 
that was the abode of the dead. Now, when we look at that doctrine a little more closely, we understand it's, it's, it's like a, a house with two completely different, separate living quarters. There was that group of people who died in, uh, without faith, uh, in, in apostasy. Uh, there was that group of people on the other side of Sheol that, were, uh, that, that, that died believing in God. They were trusting in God's promises to have a Redeemer. Well, after Jesus' death and resurrection, th- that second half of Sheol was vacated. And nobody's ever been there, back there since. For we know that to die here in in this life is to immediately be in the presence of the Lord. He took the inhabitants, the believing inhabitants of Sheol with him to heaven. There they await the final resurrection. Well, part of this this, uh, doctrine of death and and understanding uh, the afterlife, we, we find some some, uh, some helpful words from the prophet Daniel in the last chapter of his book, chapter 12, verse 2, where Daniel writes this. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake, these to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. He's talking about the, those people that have died. There are some. Uh, he calls them the many. Uh, many who sleep in the dust of the ground, those that are dead, uh, they will awake to an everlasting life. And others will awake to an everlasting contempt, an everlasting dying. So when Jesus said to this penitent thief, today you're going to be with me in paradise. I, I dare say that there flashed in his mind, um, if, if we can put uh, New Testament language in this man's mind, I, 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 I dare say he, he had heaven and hell in his mind. He had paradise and Gehenna. He had an everlasting living and an everlasting dying in mind. And Jesus promised to him life. Today you're going to be with me in paradise. You're going to be with me in heaven. You will not be away from my side. Jesus met his most earnest desire. Here's the principle again. Jesus died to secure life for repentant sinners. Here's my third principle that we glean from the, the third statement from the cross. Jesus died to secure community for repentant sinners. Now I'm back in John chapter 19, and I'm ready for our text this morning. It's kind of a long introduction. I understand that. Appreciate your patience. John chapter 19. Uh, Follow along with me as I read again our text from uh, 
verse 25 through verse 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were, okay, note who's here. We're going to come back to this. His mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to his disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. All right, look back again. Refresh your mind. Verse 25. Who are the ladies that John identifies standing around the cross? We're, we're going to find out that there are a whole bunch of people, a lot of people, but these four ladies are specifically identified. His mother, Jesus' mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, Mary Magdalene. Okay, you got that? <clears throat> okay, now you can turn to Matthew 27 and Mark 15. I'm going to read the passages from these two evangelists as they describe these ladies that are there and you're going to find some differences and some similarities, and together it will bring astonishment to our mind. Matthew 27, beginning of verse 55. Many women were there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from, now, from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Three ladies are mentioned. Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James and Joseph, Mary, the sons of Zebedee. Okay? From Mark chapter 15, verse 40 and 41, there were also some women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the less, and Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him, minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These specific women are identified. Now, I'm, I'm back in our text in John chapter 19, and I'm going to follow use this as, as kind of our guide, specifically verse 25. John mentions Jesus' mother there, Mary. Now, for, for for clarity purposes, we're going to call her Virgin Mary. Now, she hasn't been a virgin for decades. Right? She's given, given birth to a number of other children. <clears throat> she was a virgin when she was with child, specifically Jesus, but not after that. Okay, so there's that Mary. And then it says at the end of verse 25, Mary Magdalene. Okay, here's a second Mary. Now, this was um, an adopted uh, sister for the Virgin Mary, or we might say uh, an adopted aunt for Jesus. She was treated as family, even though she wasn't biologically family. All right? And then we find that there was Mary, the wife of Clopas, Clopas is Hebrew for the um, Greek word um, Alpheus, 
you may remember in the list of the disciples that there are two disciples who are the sons of Alphaeus. Um, um, James and Joseph are, are those two disciples. And in, let's see, it's, it's in Mark's Gospel. It's called James the Younger, uh, James the Less, as in Younger, and Joseph, which is the diminutive of Joseph, also known as Judas and Thaddeus. Why the guy has so many names, I don't know. Probably there's a nickname going on here. Maybe there's a middle name. Um, all, the, all the best people in history go by their middle name, I'm told. Um, it was the second century historian, Hegesippus, who said that Clopas, get this, was the brother of a certain carpenter from Galilee named Joseph. Meaning this, that Mary, the wife of Clopas, this is Mary number three, by the way, Mary, the wife of Clopas, a.k.a. Alpheus, is the Virgin Mary's sister-in-law. And her two boys, among the original 12 disciples, are Jesus' cousins. You tracking so far? Back in John's Gospel. So we've got three Marys and another woman that is identified as Mary's sister. Well, when we glue the, uh, the other um, synoptic Gospels together, we find out that this lady's name, here unidentified by name, but this lady's name is Salome. She is the wife of Zebedee. And you remember from the list of the, the, the disciples, uh, the sons of Zebedee, also called the sons of thunder, were two in number, James, the greater, or James the older, and the Apostle John. So, so, so here we have these four women that are standing very close to Jesus at the cross. Mary, 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 and Salome. Two of those gals are mothers of four of Jesus' original 12 disciples, all cousins of Jesus, well, what we have here is a, a whole pile of family. And Jesus says to his mother, woman, behold your son. And to the disciple whom he loved, his cousin John, the apostle, he says, behold your mother. Verse 27, from that hour the disciple took her into his own household. So the Virgin Mary, former Virgin Mary, now lives with her sister, or at least her nephew, John, if he wasn't still somewhere circling, circling around home, 
You know, he was probably among the youngest of all of Jesus' disciples. Now, patched together with that, this statement, the Gospels tell us that our Lord Jesus had four half-brothers that, that are mentioned. Who were they? James, another James. Joseph, another Joseph, but this is Joseph Jr. Um, a, a, a man named Simon, of whom we have no other knowledge, and Judas. Jesus, Jesus had his own Judas while he was growing up. But we know that Judas by his diminutive Jude. So here Jesus has in his own immediate family a half-brother named James who was to become the, the leader, the, the head pastor of the church in Jerusalem, and Jude who contributed also to the New Testament by uh, one of the letters that he wrote. Why is it that amongst all of this family that Jesus says to his mother, I want you to live with John, my cousin. John's going to take care of you in your old years. Why did Jesus do that? He had other brothers. Well, turns out that these other brothers had not yet come to faith. They didn't come to faith until after the resurrection. Further, among those that were in Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John, two of them, two of them were martyred, James and Peter. All that was left was John. In his omniscience, Jesus knew exactly what was best for his mother and his cousin. Here's my point. Sometimes, biological family is all we've got. And God designed the biological family, the nuclear family, to be the, the source of life and health and well-being for us. But sometimes we're going to find our greatest care, uh, our greatest health and well-being in our spiritual family, in our adopted family. When Jesus redeems a soul, they are immediately part of that um, unseen family of God. How important it is for that unseen family to be seen as the family of God. Jesus died to secure community for repentant sinners, knowing we belong to God's people. Conclusion. Okay, we, we started this morning with some very failed jokes or attempts at. Sometimes words can mean two things. Sometimes phrases can mean two things. The event of the cross 
means two things. On the one hand, the message of the cross is one that says Jesus secures forgiveness and he secures life and he secures community for all those who come to him, submit to his authority. The cross also says that for those who do not bow the knee, submit to the Lord, come to him in faith and repentance, Jesus brings and secures just the opposite. Not forgiveness, but condemnation. Not eternal life, but eternal dying. Not community, but isolation. I have talked with too many people over the years who believe that um, at the end, if they're headed to hell, it'll just be one big party. But I am afraid that they are so sadly mistaken. No, it won't be one big happy party. It's going to be one lonely void. It will be isolation with the staring judgment of Almighty God, never moving his gaze off of them. I close with Jesus' own words. This is how he began his ministry. Mark chapter 1, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray. Father, what goodness, what kindness, what blessing, what benefit awaits those who come to you in faith. If there are some here or that hear this message on the internet, for example, if there are any that hear this and are broken, convicted by the Holy Spirit, may they find forgiveness and eternal living and community in the message of cross of, of the Christ he lived out on the cross. We thank you for the hope that is ours who believe. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.